Welcome to Religionish. I'm your host, Ashley Campbell. But the unlearning is for a purpose, which is to help all of us become more free and all of us become more fully human. And that's, that's a deeply spiritual uh, embodiment, a deeply spiritual act. Coming back for me was uh, kind of about having permission to explore things that were uh, taboo. And I started right back with an exploration of uh, psychedelics and theogens and meditation in the Buddhist tradition. And it led to me kind of losing my faith, or at least my literalistic faith in my church. And there was no support uh, to be found, not from family, not from friends, not from church leaders. It was just something no one wanted to talk about. I'm particularly excited about this episode. I've been sitting on the audio for a while, and it's definitely been too long. Back in August 2018, I organized and moderated a roundtable discussion about religion podcasting. The session, called Streaming the Word, took place in Boulder, Colorado for the Conference of the International Society for Media, Religion, and Culture. Three great podcasters agreed to speak with me. John DeLynn of Mormon Stories, Vincent Horn of Buddhist Geeks, and Reverend Ann Dunlap of The Word is Resistance. Originally, this recorded session was supposed to come out in the fall of 2018. For those of you who don't know me personally, this didn't happen because my dad was diagnosed with leukemia and my priorities completely shifted. But now the podcast is back. However, this roundtable occurred so long ago that in the recording, you'll hear me call the show Holy Media. Just ignore that. Also, you can hear the background sounds of an academic conference, so please do forgive the ambient noise. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do too. Thanks to you guys. I know uh, you guys can come up further. I mean, like, this could be like a really intimate conversation. Oh, nice. Um, simply because there are, I think, about four other panels going on right now, and unfortunately, all of my <clears throat> friends who wanted to come to this are actually presenting it got oh. scheduled to overlap with us. They can listen to their phone. <laughs> um, so, thanks. Is it you that I've been tweeting yeah, with? Yeah. Nice. <laughs> Good to meet you. Uh, are you a podcaster too? Uh, yeah, off and on. Cool. Everyone here is a podcaster. <laughs> What's your podcast about? Uh, it's called uh, it's called Media and Social Change. It's the um, podcast of the lab that I'm associated with at Teachers College at Columbia. Columbia University. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, it's called Why We're Friends. It's a podcast. Me and my friend establish a friendship and talk about how we're friends across various different cool. interview people. I'm also chairing your panel later. Oh, <laughs> I'm a chair. <laughs> um, so yeah, okay. So... This does not have to be as formal as I was going to make it, um, <laughs> which I actually kind of appreciate because I think it'll probably be a better conversation then. Um, since it is just you guys, I have questions prepared for us to kind of talk about, but um, feel free, I guess, to interject because we were going to have like a Q&A session, like a normal academic panel conference. Um, so yeah. so. For those of you, if you guys don't actually know who the three people sitting in front of you are, um, John Dillon, in the middle, uh, began podcasting in 2005 with the founding of Mormon Stories. And this project led to the formation of the Open Stories Foundation and to him co-hosting the Mormon Transitions podcast. 
John also has a PhD in clinical and counseling psychology from Utah State University. Um, to my right is uh, Vincent Horn, who co-founded Buddhist Geeks in like 2006-2007 um, while he was studying at Naropa University here in Boulder. Um, and he became the sole producer of Buddhist Geeks in 2010 and also began the Buddhist Geeks Conference. Is that still going on? No. Okay. Uh, Vince is also the co-founder of Meditate.io, a digital platform to help people learn to meditate well. And then we have Reverend Anne Dunlap, um, is an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ as a community minister for racial justice and solidarity. Her faith outreach work for showing up for racial justice, or its surge, if we start using the acronym, um, led to the development of the podcast, The Word is Resistance. And Anne also occasionally teaches at Iliff. I always mispronounce it. Iliff yeah. School of Theology, which is in Denver. So thanks to all three of you um, for coming out for this panel. And um, for those of you who don't know me or haven't been getting lots of emails from me, I'm <laughs> Ashley Campbell. Um, I'm actually a PhD student in media studies here at Colorado Boulder. Um, I'm also a graduate fellow with the hosting organization Center for Media, Religion, and Culture. And I have my own podcast. It's called Holy Media. And if you couldn't guess, it's about religion and media. Um, so what I'm thinking, you know, I, I mentioned earlier uh, that since it's such a small group, if you have questions while I'm leading kind of a conversation, feel free um, to interject. But I do have some topics that I really am interested in covering with all of them. Um, after spending hours listening to all of their podcasts this weekend, <laughs> it was really fun. I just laid outside and just listened <laughs> to everybody's voices. <laughs> Um, but I kind of want to start out thinking about beginnings um, because half of us have are new or to podcasting and half of us have been doing it since the medium pretty much developed and became big with RSS feeds. Um, I was actually listening to John's first episode and talking about Skype as new technology and I kind of chuckled <laughs> to myself. But it just, it kind of puts things in perspective of how far podcasting technology and therefore the content we can produce has come. Um, so I was kind of wondering if maybe we'll start with John since you're the longest podcasting person in the room. <laughs> um, you know, kind of what moved you and motivated you to start Mormon Stories originally? Thank you. Thanks for having us. This is fun. And I'm honored to be here. Thanks for coming. Uh, I grew up Mormon and uh, pursued a career in technology for many, many years. Uh, I ended up working at Microsoft in Seattle for about seven years. And during that time, uh, I was called to be a, a teacher of high school students. We call it early, early morning seminary, and it's just religious instruction for um, Mormon high school kids and I started studying our church history in depth uh, and I learned a bunch of stuff I didn't know about the church and it was really disorienting and uh, troublesome and it led to me kind of losing my faith or at least my literalistic faith in my church and there was no support uh, to be found not from family not from friends not from church leaders it was just something no one wanted to talk about and it was so hard, I just said, I'm gonna dedicate the rest of my life to 
making it easier for people to go through this sort of uh, experience. So I left my position at Microsoft in 2004 before podcasts existed, or at least before <laughs> I was aware of them existing. The iPod One or whatever, <laughs> it just kind of rolled out, and uh, or at least and that's my memory. And uh, went to Utah State University in Logan, started studying instructional technology, and it was there that I learned for the first time about the Web 2.0 and social media. And uh, I took a class on digital storytelling and learned about the power of stories. And, and that's when I had the idea of, of doing the podcast. And I just said, I'm gonna start a podcast and allow Mormons to tell their stories, whether it's LGBT Mormons, Mormons of color, mm. women talking about feminism, dig into church history. And we're just gonna talk about all the stuff on the podcast that we can't talk about at church. And the idea was that we could, at a minimum, help uh, fellow Mormons who are struggling find peace and health, and optimally we would change, transform the church in a positive way. I was really inspired by Orthodox, no, by Reformed Judaism, and how Judaism has been able to adapt by uh, creating different pathways for different types of Jews. And I thought Mormonism has no analog to that. Uh, it's just you're either all in or um, an apostate. And so I thought, what if we could create a path for progressive or liberal Mormons within the fold? Mm. So that was a part of my sinister plan as well. And then Vince, so you started your podcast with a couple other people, whereas John, you started yours kind of solo initially. Um, what was, for your group, the initial kind of impetus for Buddhist Geeks? Yeah, I started, uh, I started initially with my best friend Ryan. And um, we were both studying at Naropa, just down the street. And uh, he was uh, studying translation and Tibetan specifically. And I was an undergrad. Um, and so we were immersed in that study and uh, also had a personal you know, connection to the tradition as meditators. Um, and so that was important to us. And um, when we looked around the Buddhist world, especially the Western Buddhist world, you know, this sort of convert Buddhist world, um, what we saw were basically like a lot of boomers at the time <laughs> who kind of dominated the conversation and dominated sort of what could be talked about, what was, and there was a kind of consensus, you know, in the, in the sort of Buddhist world about the meaning of things at that time. And we started, you know, kind of asking questions from a different generational perspective, both of us being um, kind of elder millennials. Mm -hmm. and. Um, you know, talking about technology instead of immediately dismissing it uh, wholesale uh, was a different perspective uh, that we brought to the table at that time. And, you know, we were like generally optimistic, hadn't been beaten down by life uh, quite, quite so long, uh, hadn't seen, you know, multiple we uh, waves of the web backfire and collide back <laughs> against us and, you know, uh, create like a more, uh, you know, surveillance capitalist kind of system around us. So we just hadn't, you know, become aware of, of those things or just like, hopeful and optimistic rushing into the, you know, to the new web. <laughs> um, yeah, so we were curious to explore yet some different, mm -hmm. different takes on some of the stuff that we loved and cared about as practitioners. And then Anne, yeah. it just started with right before the inauguration. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. interestingly, yeah, we've, we've only been going about a year and a half. Um, I'd never done anything like this before. Um, 
but in my role with Surge was showing up for racial justice, um, we were talking about like what what are we uniquely positioned to bring um, to the movement and to um, people of faith and especially Christians, the ways in which uh, white supremacy and Christianity are so tied up within each other. And um, there's a lot of uh, amazing scholarship that doesn't make it into like Sunday morning preaching because congregations aren't ready for it, that congregations um, can give the pastors a really hard time, pastors are afraid to preach and lose their job if they really go all the way. Um, and so uh, with my supervisor, we were talking about what if we did like a lectionary something where we could really bring it every week uh, about what these texts are, pushing back on them when they're harmful, um, trying to strip away the ways in which um, whiteness and white supremacy have twisted uh, and, and Western Christianity have, have twisted what, what scripture actually um, is trying to teach us um, and do that every week. And what if we do it as a podcast, which nobody was more surprised than me really that that was my idea. <laughs> um, so that we can actually model for um, other folks two things, like both model what anti-racist, um, decentering whiteness proclamation might look like, and also get a word out to people like myself who, who aren't getting that, mm -hmm. um, but are longing for it and thirsty for it. Like, what, what do these stories have to teach us about how to survive and thrive um, and, and dismantle what we're seeing around us right now? Because they do, they have a lot. Um, but we don't get that a lot in our churches. So that's kind of how that, that came about. And it was not a coincidence, probably, in the spiritual realm of things that, that kind of coincided with this current administration and what we're seeing and how we're speaking back to that mm -hmm. through the podcast. One of the things that I think is interesting that I kind of, I, I mean, I noticed, so I personally am like, unaffiliated with any religion. I just have spent my entire academic life studying religion. <laughs> um, so one of the things I noticed is, you know, each of you at some point or time in your life while you've been doing this podcast have been a practitioner or a believer of what you're actually talking about. And so I'm kind of curious, but I've also noticed that they're very educational podcasts too, and that you're providing either historical context or information about the tradition you're speaking from. And so I was just curious also for all three of you um, how you've either, if you've even consciously thought about that, if the podcast is being more a spiritual or personal religious expression versus being educational about um, what you're talking from. And anyone can start. I know you're all thinking. I think for us, um, those two things are interlinked because there's um, a lot of unlearning that has to be done, both about our, our tradition, um, <coughs> white Western Christianity, as well as the interpretations that have gotten imposed upon the text. Um, but the unlearning is for a purpose, which is to help all of us become more free and all of us become more fully human, and that's, that's a deeply spiritual um, uh, embodiment, a deeply spiritual act. Uh, a deeply spiritual practice. Um, and we always tie, at the end of our podcast, we try to tie the, the interpretive hermeneutic work that we do um, every week with a call to action, some kind of practice, um, whether it's um, raise some money in your church and send it to Standing Rock, or doing the internal work as white folk of 
looking at how racism is embedded in us and how we might begin to dismantle that inside us, a wide range of things, but, but how this interpretation actually um, changes our practice, our movement, our embodiment in mm -hmm. the world. So for me, it's, it's both of those things together. I will say I do appreciate the call to actions at the end. Thanks. Because um, I was, I, as I listened to them, I said, these are great, like I'm learning so much, and then to actually have to do the application as somebody who teaches college students too. Yeah. yeah, it's not just what you're learning and what I'm telling you, you can apply this outside the classroom too. Yeah. Either of you negotiated? There's a, um, something we found within Mormonism is that when someone leaves Mormonism, over half of the time they become either atheist or agnostic. And I don't think that's true in mainstream Christianity. There's something about being a part of a, of, of a real kind of fundamentalist organization that demands so much kind of high demand religion where you end up feeling like you were betrayed or deceived or abused in some ways that makes you very skeptical of any sort of belief mm -hmm. and definitely of any sort of institution. And you're, you start deconstructing the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith, but you end up deconstructing the Bible mm -hmm. and religion in general. And, uh, and so it's, it's very hard for many of us to think of ourselves as doing something religious. And there's even an allergic reaction to the term spiritual because it has very specific connotations in Mormonism that mm -hmm. many of us have, uh, like I said, allergic reactions to. Having said that, uh, I felt led to start Mormon Stories podcast. I don't know by what, <laughs> you know? Uh, I feel like it's a holy work, and I don't, I don't even know what that means. I know mm -hmm. that I'm helping people, and, uh, and I feel like it's very much informed by the values that I was taught by my church, things like courage and honesty and truth. And I think, we, I, think I think of it as helping people live healthy, meaningful lives. And if that's not what religions or what spirituality are trying to do, then I don't know what the point is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I don't think of it in religious terms. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, definitely, in, it's still sacred. still sacred work as mm -hmm. far as I'm concerned. Well, one of the things in particular I think um, I noticed earlier on in Mormon stories is some of, I don't want to say like debunking, because that's not the word I'm looking for, but um, illuminating aspects of Mormonism and Mormon history that aren't broadly known to the broader public. And so that's also where I was kind of thinking about educational versus like the personal side of it. And I think, at least in my experience in listening to author of your shows, you've early on covering a lot of like the history um, and talking about the history of the church and different figureheads of the church, there was a lot of the educational side, I think, happening. Yeah, it's, it's mind-blowing that it wasn't until I was in my early 30s that I learned some very basic historical facts about our founding leader. Mm -hmm. Like, Mormons will spend 30, 40 years engaged in a lot of religious education and never know that their founding prophet had 30 wives all that was ever discussed was that he had one. Mm -hmm. And uh, it hasn't been, you know, there have been books that have written about that, but 
you're taught never to read those books. You're taught to stay away mm -hmm. from any material and any person that could ever provide you with any information that would make you question your faith. So it's kind of mind-boggling that the rest of the world could know more about our founding history than we did. And I spent two years serving a mission for my church, you know, uh, and have spent thousands of hours in religious education. So, yeah, uh, our goal has never been to sort of deconvert people, but it definitely has been to educate Mormons about their own faith um, so that they can make informed decisions about how they spend their time and their money and their reputation. Or even non-Mormons. I learned things that I didn't know just from studying Mormonism. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm thrilled when non-Mormons listen. It makes me really happy. Um, you can keep answer, but I have a follow-up question that will, I think, allow you to also continue on this conversation of educational um, versus kind of like personal practice. Um, both John and Vince took breaks from their podcasting. There were brief moments where new material was not being published. And as somebody currently going through that with my own podcast, as I'm trying to like redevelop it and kind of give it a new face, um, I'm, I'm curious as to how you guys felt your shows changed or grew um, from those breaks. Um, because I think the shows that come back are definitely different. Um, and I know um, that I hope when I come back to my podcast that it's different than what it was before. So uh, coming back for me a couple years ago after a year long hiatus, um, really dropping the I sort of vested, these sort of last vestiges I had with that, the, the, the idea of being a Buddhist, um, which you could say is part of the Buddhist path. Um, <laughs> that you really want to be. <laughs> Buddhist-y. But um, coming back for me was uh, kind of about having permission to explore things that were uh, taboo. And I started right back with an exploration of uh, psychedelics and theogens and meditation in the Buddhist tradition and how there was an underground of practitioners, call them psychedelic Buddhists, who've been exploring with these different substances and combining them with Buddhist forms. Um, and who, you know, who I got to know being one of them over the last several years. And it was startling to me how big of an underground this was and, and also how taboo, uh, for obvious reasons it is. Um, and so I felt now that I wasn't really a Buddhist anymore, I could just be the kind of Buddhist I already, you know, <laughs> found myself being, which was one that's like, you know, I feel more aligned with the history of my tradition, of the people who uh, bucked the tradition and, you know, went out and did weird stuff, um, you know, and did stuff they weren't supposed to do conventionally. Mm -hmm. Like that's the kind of, to me, that's my relationship to meditation and the exploration of consciousness has always been about bucking conventionality, bucking the conventional assumptions about the nature of identity and self and world. So um, this coming back and having let go of that vestige felt like, oh, you know, why not join this conversation and um, help push, push this forward at a time where there's countervailing forces that want to kind of shut down these kinds of conversations and these kinds of freedoms that, you know, some of you all are exploring. Um, you know, how can I 
in my own way, kind of push back and resist those forces um, has also been part of the question. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't really talk about that as much on the podcast. Or I've started to. I, uh, the first two, I was telling Vincent this uh, before, uh, the first two times I shut down the podcast, the first time I had learned that, uh, well, let me back up. When I started the podcast, my naive hope was to help keep people engaged in the church because I started to see people all around me leaving the church and I, I loved my upbringing in the church and so... Part of it was this idea that I, if we could all talk about things, people would need to leave. And within a year or two, I realized that because I was just simply talking about things that people weren't aware of, mm -hmm. there were people that were learning this stuff for the first time, feeling betrayed, and some of them would ultimately leave the church. And I felt really responsible for that. Um, growing up Mormon, probably the worst thing you could ever do was cause someone to leave the church or leave the church yourself. So. Um, so I felt responsible when I found out that some people had left the church and attributed their leaving to my podcast and it just freaked me out. Mm -hmm. So the first time I shut it down was I was just mm -hmm. overwhelmed by feeling like I had done really serious harm. And then the second time it was something similar. I, I had learned that some of these same people had ended up getting divorced and their family got split up and I came from a broken home. And, and again, I, I kind of took responsibility for that. And if I hadn't have started the podcast, they wouldn't have lost their faith. And then they wouldn't have gotten divorced and, and I, you know, the family wouldn't have been wrecked. Um, but, uh, you know, I got overwhelmed by listeners saying, John, it's almost arrogant, that assumption you're making that you have that much power. Uh, you, people need what you're doing and people are going to make their own decisions and you just can't take responsibility for that. So, so I, I fired myself from feeling overly responsible for the decisions people made in their lives. And that, that freed me to not be as self-conscious uh -huh. uh, as a podcaster. This, the third time I uh, restarted, I had stopped to apply to PhD programs in Utah. Uh, BYU has three of the six programs that I applied to, and that's a religious university. And I wanted to get in, and it's highly competitive, these PhD programs. And I was worried that if they thought I was podcasting in a controversial way, it might impact my candidacy. Mm -hmm. So I shut the podcast down to apply to grad school, got in uh, to a bunch of programs, but I decided to go to a state-run school, which was a smart decision. So, um, but after a year, uh, when my fellowship ran out, I was offered a TA position paying me like $10 an hour, and I had four, four teenage children and a, and a wife who didn't work outside the home, and I couldn't survive on part-time $10 an hour. So I made a deal with my listeners. If you will financially contribute to the podcast, I'll do this instead of take that TA job. Mm -hmm. And uh, the response was overwhelming. And the, we started a nonprofit at the same time. And we made $40,000 that first year, which was a really great source of income to work only five hours a week while you're putting yourself through grad school. Mm -hmm. And I'm happy to say, touch wood, as they say in India, <laughs> that... Um, <laughs> That, uh, touch panel, <laughs> that the, the, the revenue has grown every year since. And uh, so the biggest thing that came out of that was this sort of relationship where I wasn't just doing it for free because that wasn't sustainable. Uh, to do the quality of work we've done, you need, you need support. Mm -hmm. And so 
I entered into that agreement uh, eight years ago, and it's been the best thing that's ever happened. Uh, yeah. My listeners sustain what we do, and I don't feel resentful or like I'm, and I'm doing it full time, so I can do this full time. And all sorts of cool things have grown out of it. Yeah. So that's been amazing. So you haven't taken a break yet. No. <laughs> um, but I mean, so one of the things that I also think comes out of taking breaks, whatever the reason is, is also at least in my, in my case of learning what does and doesn't work pretty quickly. Um, or you start to do it and um, you realize that the way you were going about doing your podcast isn't, you know, the result isn't what you were hoping for mm-hmm. or the implications aren't what you were hoping for. Um, have you guys come across that at all yet with the word is resistance? Um, I don't I don't think so. I mean, I think um, it helps to have a team. So it's, it's not just me every week. We have, I think there are six of us right now um, all over the country who we just, we take turns. We sign up for a Sunday and, and that's, that's our week to do. Um, uh, so nobody's particularly burdened every week. I think the tricky bit has been finding like volunteer sound editors mostly <laughs> um, and figuring out the best way across space and time to, to put all those pieces together, um, just technologically speaking. Um, but we haven't, um, I don't think, yeah, I still feel like we're really new and really just just starting to really get the hang of it and finding our stride in a way after after a year and a half. Um, and uh, for, for me, I guess, just um, what works and doesn't work, um, in the beginning, uh, feeling like I had to say all the things, every single thing, and have it really, like, like it was an academic exercise. And um, there's, there's so much to say. Uh, so letting go of that um, and then coaching my team into like, let go of having to feel like the, that, or that it has to be wrap up really nicely because sometimes with these texts, we get, I, you know, I get to the, to the end of, of it and I'm still left with questions mm-hmm. that there aren't good answers for. And, um, and so that's what I leave, whoever's listening, that's what I leave them with. Like, what are we gonna, like this happened last summer, what, there was parable after parable after parable. So these are teachings and stories uses, stories Jesus uses to teach about the, what the vision of beloved community looks like. And in story after story after story, there were enslaved people as part of this vision. And I was just, there's no good answer for that. You can't wrap that up nicely in a nice little bow. And so I just left folks with that. Like that's, as white folks, that's what we have to wrestle with. That their imagination, even Jesus' imagination was this limited. And what does that, what does that tell us about our own imagination? Um, so I think just being willing to be uncomfortable and honest and human really helped like kind of open that space up for us to be, I think just more authentic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that actually kind of leads me into the topic I was really excited to ask you guys about <laughs> um, is like, so, except for Anne's, you guys, you just, it's one of you and you're doing, you know, the last time with the call to action. The others have done like interviews. Mm. And you had like 
one. Yeah, two. we've done a couple of episodes where as many of us who are available get on and talk about. So we did that around um, what we call Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. So really looking at um, that national holiday, how Christianity ties up in that. All of us talking together. We did that around uh, Christmas as well. Um, John Bergen in Philly has started interviewing folks. Um, The one that you just probably heard was the sanctuary worker. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, The one that's coming out, I think today, um, he interviewed uh, one of the folks, um, organizers on the ground in Charlottesville um, in anticipation of the the A12 coming up on Sunday, um, the year anniversary of the white supremacist violence um, in Charlottesville. So I think he's starting to bring some of that in. It's not that we'd say don't do that. It's like whatever works for you. If So you want to interview folks, if you just want to talk and, and proclaim, um, I think there's an openness um, to, to what folks feel like serves in the moment and serves the text. So one of the reasons I was bringing up kind of the conversations about interviews is um, because at some point, each of you has either opened yourself up and definitely turned kind of the mic, as I would say, like turned the mic around on yourself and been very, very vulnerable, I would say, to an audience that you're not seeing and you're not necessarily going to ever talk to face to face or maybe even engage with because there are listeners who just never reach out. Um, and I'm just very curious as to what made you kind of take that initial step to be vulnerable on your podcast um, and kind of your thoughts about putting yourself into the podcast. And this also stems from, um, in listening to Vince at one point, um, actually when you were coming back from the break, the episode when you are coming back from the, your break, um, thinking about how these projects become such a core part of our identity. And I also think about this too, and um, with regards to like academic work of, I'm pretty much like creating this like product that as somebody who's not a parent, but it is my child in a way, mm-hmm. it's my intellectual child. <laughs> and you put so much of yourself into that, that to then um, either question it or, um, to like give it up to your audience in a way is kind of sacrificing and um, I don't know, I, I just this thought about like the self in podcasting and removing yourself from the podcast and when to put yourself into it is kind of what I'm getting at. I, I felt like there have been uh, these sort of pivot points over the years, you know, where it's felt necessary to turn the mic around and I haven't really thought about it in any meaningful way until just now, while you're asking the question. Uh, maybe a little before as I was reading over the question. But I'm realizing now that it's, it's kind of, uh, th- those are moments where th- there needed to be a, a change, you know, in how I was thinking about things or doing things or how I conceived of what it was, mm-hmm. you know, that Buddhist Geeks is and, and why. Um, and those ended up being the moments where turning the mic around made sense, and I, I, I sort of relate to it through the lens of uh, a developmental psychologist named Robert Keegan. Um, I think he talks about adult development and says, 
sort of as adults develop, you know, what's happening at a fundamental level is you're making the what was previously your sense of su self, the subject, you're making it an object to a new sense of self, new subject. Um, and so, you know, that's one of the weird things about being a podcaster is you get to make yourself an object uh, <laughs> regularly if you listen to your own podcast, which is, you know, another interesting conversation. Well, if you're editing, you have to listen if to yourself. If you're editing, right, which I, which I did much of and was a sound editor for a number of years professionally. So I, you know, I, I, you know to me, turning the mic around is also about making objects, these assumptions and just laying them out there and knowing at some level this is the weird thing to me about podcasting is like it feels like being kind of half naked. Mm -hmm. um, it's like I'm le I know I know that I'm delusional because I keep seeing how delusional I was. <laughs> so I know I'm delusional now. I don't know how right now. I don't know what bullshit I'm spouting, but I know I'm spouting some kind of bullshit. <laughs> and I'm gonna later see it in retrospect, and it's gonna be terribly embarrassing. But does that embarrassment keep me from being vulnerable now? Mm -hmm. um, that's been a big challenge for me. A question. I sort of don't really know. Uh, sometimes it feels like it is appropriate to back off, uh, and then other times it feels like it's good to plunge in. For me, uh, I really like the original model of, of me just interviewing other people and letting them tell their stories and letting the stories speak for themselves. I, I think I had the sense that if I wanted to help people grow and change, I was not going to be effective if they felt like I was trying to overtly instigate change in them. You know, people resist overt attempts to change. So if I wanted, and, and mostly I wanted to reach people whose minds were pretty closed. Uh, so I felt like the most disarming thing you could do is just bring someone on, let them tell their story. And they get hooked by the narrative and by the emotion of the story not by the, you know, the, the information that's being shared. So there was a strategy in that, and, uh, and I wanted to be as neutral as possible to have the broadest reach. Mm -hmm. So part of my strategy was to never really make it about me or my personal beliefs, partly because I had lost my faith, but wanted believers to be willing to listen. So for all those reasons, I tried to stay out of the way. But uh, over time... Uh, a couple things, um, you know, my, I, I started having my own journey, my journey got really complex, and at the very core of everything I've done is just a, a core belief that it needs to make a difference, that I want to make the world a better place, that I want to alleviate suffering and promote growth, and so I've always been very mission-driven, and so as my mission and focus changed, I felt like I needed to communicate that because I was always calling for support. And I, I wanted to give people a cause to sign up for or a mission to believe in. So as, I'm, as my motives and mission is changing, I always felt the need to communicate that. And that signaled to people that, that I was changing. And, um, and over time, I found there was this reality TV element to what I was doing where my story became as interesting to my listeners as the people I was interviewing. Mm -hmm. And I got more and more calls for, for you know, people that, well, what do you really believe, John? What do you really think? And so I just found it to be an important way to stay connected with my listeners would, would be to not just interview others, but to give listeners an insight into what I think and feel. And, 
it, those were, have always been very well received uh, episodes. And then over time, as I started studying Brene Brown and the importance of vulnerability, I've just come to believe that the vulnerability is an important, uh, I call it the gasoline and the engine of intimacy. If, mm -hmm. if you don't have vulnerability, you can't have intimacy. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have intimacy, you can't really have connection and meaningful relationships. Mm -hmm. So I'm just a believer in that. And what is, like, I think that's also something to think about intimacy and podcasting. And it's this disembodied voice coming at you, but at the same time, it's, especially with earbuds, it's like in your head and you're just in that person's life. Yeah. And the time is spent. Yes, together. <laughs> yeah. I think, um, the, vulner the vulnerability piece for, for us in the world, in the word is resistance, because we are a team of white people talking to other white people and, and, and trying to resource us in um, dismantling white supremacy and dismantling the ways that, that whiteness um, impact us, that because whiteness teaches us not to feel and not to be vulnerable, that modeling that vulnerability in the podcast itself, telling the stories that lay bare, like our own mistakes, our own learnings, um, our own um, broken and, and aching hearts about the world uh, is a really key piece of what we do. Um, all of our folks have told stories about how um, capitalism and white supremacy and, and others of these systems have impacted their communities, impacted their lives, um, and uh, just and for myself, um, I mean, it was terrifying in the beginning. I remember when I was when I first started working on on uh, you know those first initial episodes. It would I would just I would spend hours just staring because we write out our transcripts to make them accessible so folks can read them if they if they're not able to listen, and just think well, like what am I doing? And once I kind of like realized that that vulnerability was a gift that that made it made me feel more free and actually um, opening up um, letting people hear uh, I hope um, the sadness and exhaustion in my voice as somebody who tries to work, do the work on the day on a daily basis um, uh, to hear joy too to hear how we resource each other and to and and, and to be able to just hear that mm -hmm. um, not only in the stories that we tell but like in actually the, the inflection and um, I'm sure the exhaustion sometimes um, in, in, in what we're talking about but I, for, for me I think that's just that's really key the wrestling with the questions the, the open honesty about not knowing um, all of that is part of uh, dismantling white supremacy and how it messes with us. Um, so that's, that's crucial, I think, to what we're trying to do. Hey, Ashley here. I'm interrupting for a quick second. I want to tell you about an exciting addition to the religionist conversation. You. The show recently got a phone number, so now you can call religionist and leave a voice memo at 720-442-8623. Do you have a question about religion? Is there a religion nerd moment you've had recently? Or is there just something giving you life right now that should be part of a spirit check? You can answer these questions and leave any other opinions and observations you have at 
442-8623. Don't miss your chance to contribute your nerdy voice to the show. Um, I want to open it up if anyone has comments or questions. Yeah. I have a question. I have two. <laughs> <laughs> um, the first question um, has to do with uh, kind of tagging off the connection and vulnerability. John, I noticed that as you talked about your podcast, you mentioned a lot about your listeners and about the connections that you have with your listeners. Um, and I wonder for the rest of the panel um, how that interaction has been shaped as you've been developing your podcast. For me, one of the things that's hard is we don't know a lot of our listeners. And so that sense of being vulnerable is like one step. But then I'll run into someone that I know that I go, oh, I really love your podcast. And I'm like, you're listening to you. <laughs> and so that kind of just completely kind of shifts um, how we interact with the podcast um, because we know who's listening or because we don't know who's listening. Um, so I'm curious to know how you guys interact or don't interact um, with people who are listening, if you know them. Um, the second larger meta question um, has to do with notions of transcendence mm -hmm. and ways in which podcasts kind of condense time and space, and so you have this sense of being able to tangibly grab the beyond in a way, like I'm listening to this voice way over here about this thing. Um, as you think about maybe your own um, intersection with religion and transcendence, what do you think podcasts kind of play in people kind of engaging and tangibly connecting um, with the beyond? So especially since each of your podcasts have religion. So connecting to listeners, yeah. transcendence, and audience. For us, I think the listeners is still, that's still a work in progress. We, we invite folks to interact with us, but I don't know that we know a good way to make that happen yet. Um, uh, I know some of the people who listen, you can track that on SoundCloud, like, mm -hmm. oh, my friends are whatever. <laughs> but then, like, you know, they're listening in Germany. I'm like, I have no idea. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> Why are people listening in Germany? But hopefully, hopefully it's helpful. Um, uh, so I mostly just imagine people that I know in my head and talk to them, or somebody like me who's thirsty for, for that word and, and talk to them. Talk to myself, <laughs> I guess. Um, but, I, but that's still, I think, what we're trying to, uh, something we're trying to figure out is like how um, can we figure out as a kind of a volunteer thing, I mean, I'm I'm paid by Surge to do more work than just the just the podcast. Everybody else is volunteer, including our sound editor. Um, is there a way to make that happen? Um, I'm also surprised when people are like, "Oh, I heard your podcast." I'm like, oh, oh, people do listen to it. Okay, good. <laughs> right. Um, not just speaking to the void. Yeah, not just speaking into the void, which it, it can feel like sometimes. Um, the second question, I think, uh, around transcendence, several of us, or maybe all of us, in the beginning of our, oh, the, the opening, like for myself, I always try to get people grounded in like where they are by telling people where I am. So I'm sitting in my backyard and I'm looking at these herbs that are growing and it's hotter than whatever, or, or you know, it's early spring. Like getting us, like grounded in 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 a place. So what is it like where you are? What does spring look like where you are? What is summer looking like where you are? What's happening in your body right now? Some of our folks like have people do 
some breathing practice if you're not driving and riding your bike. It's a bad idea. But, um, but like to, to be connected to where they are, because it is a little bit of a disembodied experience. Um, so that's, that's one of the ways that we, we try to do that. Um, I, it's interesting, the, the first question about you know, getting to know uh, people listening. Like the first few years of Buddhist Geeks, it was very much a one-way. Uh, occasionally someone would email out of the void and I'd hear some positive remarks, most of them. Um, and then, you know, that, that actually felt like a disconnect. Um, and so my, my response to that uh, was to start hosting an uh, annual conference. Um, and bring people together in, in, meet, in meet space, you know, as, as, as geeks, whatever you call it. Um, and so uh, we did that for four years in a row. And uh, although it's, you know, it was only attended by a few hundred people, which is a small cross-section of the overall, you know, uh, people that listen to the podcast, it still felt like an important cross-section. And those events felt like, for me, I learned a lot about you know, I love myself seeing all these weird people uh, that listen to me and um, uh, learned a lot about um, the intersecting, you know, communities and people and their work and all the interesting stuff that I knew nothing about. It was such a cool thing. And to see pe the people actually get to connect uh, also and start to create new, new, new ways of connecting that led, that I think directly led to interesting projects and, and, collaborations like that that was uh, for all those reasons I'm glad I did it but organizing this kind of events really sucks <laughs> um, it's just hard so um, but yeah that, that's been kind of how my relationship to the people who listen has changed and, and I hope I count many people now as my best friends or people I've met who are first listeners of the podcast yes sir. Um, and then yeah in terms of transcendence um, you know, I don't. I didn't quite totally understand what you meant by transcendence and where you're coming from because it's you know got a lot of rich. Yeah. Meaning, but just how do you? I'd be curious to know what came to mind. Yeah. Um, what came to mind is uh, kind of the nature of stories, and um, one of my meditation teachers is also a philosopher. Oh, or he's a Zen teacher and philosopher, which is sort of a weird combination. Because um, Zen is known for being like not anti-conceptual exactly, but not bound up in concepts. And philosophy is, you know, all about concepts. Um, but anyway, hanging with him, you know, he really explored uh, stories from both sides. You know, and, and one of the things he often said is, you know, is the is the purpose of the spiritual path to find the correct story, or is it to uh, to, be, to, to, to find that there are no stories, to get rid of stories? Or is it to learn to story in new ways? Mm. And I've, I've increasingly found the podcast, Buddhist Geeks, being an opportunity to like story in different ways, and mm -hmm. explore different kinds of stories, and see how those stories meet, and how they change us personally. And I don't know, it's, it's very, it's hard to grasp exactly uh, what it is, but that's, I guess, part of transcendence. <laughs> for me uh, I have the luxury of serving an audience that has a geographic critical mass so you know 
a huge percentage of the world's Mormons live in Utah, and I live in Utah. Um, so when I first started the podcast, and, and by the way, those who don't live in Utah usually have family that live in Utah, so they're <laughs> traveling to Utah regularly. So that, that made it so from the very beginning, people would just uh, email me and say, can I come have lunch? Can I come have breakfast? Can I come have dinner with you? And so very, very early on, I started just every week, my calendar would just be full of listeners coming to wherever I lived and, and meeting with me. Um, then, I would, then I would open up my phone and uh, it even got to the point where I was traveling. I was working for MIT and I was traveling over the world. And wherever I was going, if I had like an hour car ride, I'd go up to Facebook and say, hey, if anybody needs to talk, here's my phone number. And then people would just call and I would just kind of connect with them. Uh, it started like that, and I've literally had tens of thousands of meetings with listeners over the years, and I've been doing it 14 years. So that was the first way that I really got connected with my listeners. Um, and that led to me getting... I'm too much of an introvert. So oh. I can't imagine. <laughs> well, that's one of the reasons I decided to pursue a PhD in psychology. I, I realized that five, six years into my podcast, I never got sick of meeting with my listeners and mm. hearing their stories. And I'm like, well, if I love this, maybe I should get paid for it. <laughs> so I did six years and got my PhD. And now, now I, do, I do coaching or counseling, mm. small practice. And uh, that, that's helpful because it's more sustainable. Sometimes my wife was like, you talk to the whole world, but where's, where's your time for me? You know what I mean? Mm. And that was a real problem because you start feeling the sense of responsibility for tens of thousands of people. It's easy to, to neglect those closest to you. Mm -hmm. the, the nonprofit that I started has evolved where now we do workshops and retreats all over the country. So every month we'll pick a city and we'll either two days or three days where we have 60 people in a room that are all struggling to navigate uh, their faith crisis and their journey. And I'm able to make a living off of doing workshops and retreats to support people. So I get to know them intimately in that setting as well. And that's really nice. So, yeah, I, I know way too many listeners. I've talked to way too many people. It's hard for me to remember names and stories because my brain has been inundated with everybody's story. But it's been a real blessing and a gift as well. Um, yeah, so I'm overconnected with my listeners. Uh, and then as far as, you know, uh, transcendence, is that the question? You know, um, I... I have a love-hate relationship with my religious tradition because I feel like every so much that I like about myself has come from it. I feel very privileged in so many ways and I, I can't help but attribute that to my upbringing. And so I love it, but I also see it as, if not a cult, um, very cultish or cult-like. And it, it's, it's very painful to even utter those words in public because I still am wired very much Mormon, but I'm stuck with that. So, and when you look at, if, if you ever do reading in the cult literature, you realize that cults can take over people's minds uh, in a very real way. Um, where every, you know, their behavior, their thoughts, their emotions, the information that they consume are all controlled. And their lives are controlled. And so, uh, because of the allergic stuff I told you about to just institutions and religion and even spirituality, I, I don't know to what extent 
we support transcendence in the way that you're talking about, but the way I like to think about it, and when I feel like I've done a really good job, people will come up to me and say, thank you for giving me my life back. Mm-hmm. And if I've done that, if I, and that, my goal isn't to take people out of Mormonism, because I think you can live a transcendent life within Mormonism, Mormonism if you see it for exactly what it is, and engage with it on your own terms. So, uh, but whether they stay in the church or without, I want to see people fully awakened, fully aware of what it is, and feel like they have full ownership and control over their lives. And I feel like if I can get them to that point, then they can pursue Christianity or Buddhism or secularism as a, as a agent, as a free agent. Mm-hmm. Whereas maybe before my podcast, they were under various forms of control where they weren't mm-hmm. autonomous. <laughs> So I, I feel like I'm giving people the chance to uh, experience transcendence. And I'm not saying that Orthodox Mormons can't experience transcendence, um, but I just think many don't know what they're a part of. And I help, I help that a little bit. Does anybody else have any questions, topics you want to talk about? I had a thought in response yeah. to the transcendence thing. Okay. Interesting. I was just referring to me, you know, to, to transcend, you obviously have to transcend from something to something else. Um, and so it's a, it's a wide open question from what to what, but I, I can really relate to what you're saying in the sense of, um, when you're talking about people who are able to become free of this sort of way of being made up by their, by their environment, by their community, by their church, or by their they don't seem to have control of certain aspects of how they think or what they do. Um, you know, those are the people I've, I, I meet coming into Buddhism usually. They're already sort of generally living in that way. Not all, but many. Um, and w- what I found is kind of a transcendence of that is another, uh, another transcendence. It's like working with this tendency to... Um, start to, to make these rational connections and build these sort of systems of thought and then sort of live inside of them. Um, that there's a process of kind of disabling that, of deconstructing that, and that inc- somehow includes the, the self uh, and the way that self-identity is experienced. Um, and so I'm really interested in that, and some of my friends and people have had in the podcast are called meta-rationality. And it's kind of what does it look like to, to start to, be, to make those systems of thinking objects themselves mm-hmm. um, and be able to maybe be more fluid in a fluid relationship to to frameworks and how, how we and they're not just frameworks they're literally like when we step in them it's it's reality is like this now it's not it's like a re, it's not quite a framework it's a reality tunnel as you know one NLP dude put it uh, Anton Wilson um, so I'm, I'm really curious about how to how to transcend systems so that we can um, uh, build more agile ones that are more responsive to what we really need as human beings. Um, and, and I'm curious about what the spirituality of that looks like, um, you know, where the self is quite fluid uh, and identity becomes ultra-fluid. And there's, in the Buddhist tradition at least, then there's, but there's simultaneously this kind of deep freedom that's experienced in knowing that there's some part of me or there's maybe the background of reality is not um, 
taking form. It's not it's not taking form as this identity. Mm -hmm. There's something greater. There's a there's a mystery, a vast depth of unknowing um, that simultaneously also somehow my deepest nature. Um, and that to me maybe is where they yeah, I'm interested in the intersection of that kind of freedom, that depth of subjective freedom with a freedom to start to conceive of reality differently. Um, that's, I have a hard time putting into words, but um, you know, it, it takes shape as you know, an ability to step outside of certain polarities. Um, you know, it's like the right and the left, or um, certain kind of systems that have kind of become oppositional in which, you know, if you really believe that it's a fight versus this and this, then you step inside of that reality. It's like, well, there's all sorts of other possibilities that exist outside of the frames we've been handed. You know, meta, to be meta-rational is to, to be able to, to see the thing from different places. Mm -hmm. uh, and then thus to be open, you know, to have a different way of action, a different, you know, different ways of coming in. Yeah. Um, so I don't know, that's something I'm really curious about, and I feel like it's, it's a kind of transcendence also. Uh, if it doesn't make any sense, well, it doesn't make any sense to me either. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am curious. Um, so in, I've done some very like narrow research on one particular podcast um, and thinking about, one, why, even though it's been around since 2005, podcasting in the academic world hasn't become a, an object of study really significantly at least in what I've kind of followed which whereas Twitter has like everyone wants to write about religion and Twitter <laughs> um, and um, and now I hear things about like religion and Instagram and you hear about religion and Facebook and yet all of these all these media objects kind of emerged around the same time Yet podcasting hasn't really, I think, been interrogated as much. Um, and so in, in an attempt to kind of do some of that, I, I'm curious about um, when John, you talk about like an allergy to institutions um, and an allergy to, <laughs> I, I, write there, I write there too. I was going to make a joke of, you're welcome to hang out with all the millennials that feel that way too. <laughs> um, but, uh, On Facebook. <laughs> um, that in a way, you know, there's an easy connection you can make between, oh, podcasting is just the digital version of radio. Or, and that's like an easy way to kind of explain podcasting to people who don't know what it is, but that's not actually what it is. It's, it's separate, and I think people conflate podcasting and radio because big broadcasters have moved onto the platform and are kind of the programs that dominate podcasting in a way. But at the same time, um, with this one show that I was kind of examining, I was interested in the ways in which podcasting in its separation from time and space serves as a separate religious community or could serve as a separate religious community particularly for those who are allergic to institutions mm -hmm. and organized religion. And I was just curious, um, even in the audience, like what your thoughts are about that. 
I mean, I think for me that's part of the reason why we started ours, and not in exactly with the intention to build community, but to offer a word for folks who weren't getting it mm -hmm. um, elsewhere, a, a real a word that's really. Um, in Christian tradition, we, we use that like to, to offer a word and to preach a word is like with a capital W, right? Is like um, that's really rooted in collective liberation. That's really rooted in. Um, uh, anti-racist praxis um, uh, and, and to for, for folks like me who are sick and tired of the institution and the way institutions continually like white Western Christianity continues to center white comfort over anything else um, and I'm done with it <laughs> even though I'm still wearing my collar um, uh, it's been a long conversation with my spiritual director <laughs> um, uh, because I think there is that hunger and that thirst for something different that the institution isn't offering or attempts to offer but continues to recenter white comfort over and over and over again. Um, in our podcast, we like value the decentering of white comfort. Like, I put my own discomfort out for the world to hear, in that sense. Um, just to, because we have to, uh, as white people, like, just to be, to be really clear about that. Um, I would love to, to see, I mean, I think it's an interesting, like, the 21st century is an interesting world because I feel like there are other, like, online spaces that I move in, for example, um, a bunch of like uh, queer opera fans who adore certain operas that that in which women dress in trousers and sing to other women. Just to be clear, um, we a lot of us have never met. Like some of you live in Europe, I may never meet them, and yet we have this community um, that's rooted in an online space that I'm close to as if they lived in Denver with me. And I would love to think that our podcast, The Word is Resistance, is offering a similar kind of thing. Like when I listen to um, Adrienne Marie Brown and Autumn Brown on uh, How to Survive the End of the World, which is the one podcast I do listen to, because ironically I don't listen to podcasts that much. Um, like I feel like I'm in space with them. I feel like I'm sharing uh, something about how they, they they do their, their podcast together, like sometimes they're at the table or they're out at Autumn's farm and they're talking about the kids and they're running in and out, like you're living something with them. Mm -hmm. um, and it goes back to the intimacy. Yeah, goes back to the intimacy and... Maybe also the setting in life. The setting in life, the, the, the spiritual part of me wants to think that we're actually not as bound by physicality as maybe we think we are, that we can connect to each other in spirit and in heart and in breath across time and space um, and be connected to each other. Like, I feel like I know Adrienne Marie Brown, never met her, I hope to someday. Um, if you haven't read Emergent Strategy, please do. We quoted a lot in our podcast, actually. Um, that I think is I think is worth exploring. I mean, if people are talking about that about Twitter, about Instagram, about Facebook, um, 
there's a, a whole community of uh, Christian um, clergy women that, uh, again, like started online, you know, like a handful bloggers, Christian clergy women bloggers, and now it's like 6,000 members, multiple face group, book groups, all of this stuff, supporting each other, may never meet each other in person, although sometimes they try. Um, we try. I think that's worth talking about with podcasts, like how we can use this medium to actually be connected to each other in a time right now where division is really fraught and, and feels very aggressive and is very aggressive and violent. Um, how can we find each other? Uh, even if we never lay eyes or hands on each other, like how, but how can we, like, in spirit and in breath and in heart, connect to each other across time and place and know that, that we're all here? Um, I really like what you said before about, um, you know, the sort of like, I'm here in my body, it's springtime, I'm looking at the garden, et cetera. Mm -hmm. and, and it seems to me that like one of the, like, one of the potentials that podcasting has, even more so than radio, to go back to your point, um, is this idea that, that in a certain sense, it does not sort of take us out of the world around us uh, in the way that looking at the screen does. Um, you know, that's not to say that I can't like put my headphones on and do all kinds of shutting out of other things. Mm -hmm. You know, so I wouldn't I wouldn't want to take it too far. But but there's something about that idea of being able to be visually attentive to um, to to what's around me while engaged with a podcast and to be um, engaged in sitting in the garden doing the dishes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, so many people do their podcast listening in, in the midst of their ordinary life. And, you know, and it seems to me that there are significant religious traditions that care about helping us understand the rhythms of our ordinary life in extraordinary ways. And so if there's a, a sort of um, a sense of religious practice, including possibly communal religious practice that is, is um, opened up by podcasting. For me, it has something to do with that um, access mm -hmm. um, that, that you as a podcaster potentially have to um, an individual or an audience in the midst of what they're doing. Mm -hmm. John or Vince, do you have any thoughts? Podcast as a medium and religious, well, not, I don't want to say religious experience, but <laughs> <laughs> the concept of like a new kind of community. I think about that all the time. Um, originally, I wondered whether we could create a reform Mormonism that was a literal religious tradition. Uh, the problem is when you, and I don't know if others would view this as a problem, but when you start studying Joseph Smith and some of the things he did in his life, when you start studying the foundational Mormon text, which is the Book of Mormon, you learn that Joseph Smith like married other men's wives, married 14-year-old girls, uh, and then you learn that the origins of the Book of Mormon are probably fraudulent and you know plagiaristic. And that becomes a really hard foundation to build a, 
a parallel religious movement upon because people are like, and I'm not saying Joseph Smith was a pedophile or whatever, but people will say things like, why would I want to start a, a progressive religious movement founded on this guy? So, um, so those, those dreams of sort of a reform Mormonism kind of have died for me. Um, but, you know, the, the Facebook group, the Mormon Stories podcast community, has over 11,000 members. Um, in 2011, I, I realized that my ability to have phone calls and lunches and dinners with my listeners uh, was far too limited. And so we went up on Facebook and created 100 Mormon Stories communities all over the world. London Mormon Stories community, Atlanta Mormon Stories, Boise, Phoenix, you know, Washington, D.C. And, and they got filled very quickly with 40 to 100 to 500 people. And those people were encouraged to do book clubs and, and uh, play groups and dinner groups. And uh, um, many of those communities are, are very thriving today where, where people get together regularly. They have barbecues, they have campouts, they, they fellowship one another. Uh, when somebody's new to the struggle, there are sort of veterans that are in the community that can befriend them and help guide them through the process. And lasting friendships have been created um, where between the online communities and then the face-to-face -face communities, people sort of feel like they have what they need to build a happy, healthy life. Mm -hmm. And if there's no doctrine, there's no dogma, there's no patriarchy, there's no leader. Uh, there's no Sunday ritual, and in fact, post-Mormons find, uh, they call it Second Saturday, the, the discovery or the emergence or the gift of a, of a second day of the week to enjoy your life and to make the most of it and to have fun and meaning. They find that too precious where they never want to have to attend a, a Sunday meeting again. They find that as one of the real rewards. But yeah, we've created this massive, and, and our, the ex-Mormon Reddit community has over 80,000 members, um, and it's growing exponentially. So, um, so yeah, community is one of the most important things that we do. And it's not religious, but it's kind of post-religious, and it's kind of secular, but there's spiritual elements to it, and most importantly, there's just, uh, a lot of support and friendship and uh, kindness that, that goes on in these communities. And it's different than the church experience I grew up with, but I, I think it's meant a great deal to the people who have been a part of it. Mm -hmm. I have a question about that. Do you think that that's, um, that's really interesting to me? And I, I wonder if the development of those, that deep community um, of ex-Mormons is shaped by the fact that they're Mormons. I wonder if you think that that's, if that could be readily replicated among people of other groups. Absolutely. I think Orthodox Jews could, could have communities like this, ex-Scientologists. I mean, there are... I'm involved with a bunch of ex-Evangelicals. I'm involved with a bunch of ex-Evangelicals. Ex-Evangelicals. And there's a podcast and a Facebook group and a Twitter talk. And we're about to have our very first face-to-face like, -face meeting in September, down in Tampa. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm thinking, oh my God, yeah, we could have community groups and we could have book clubs. And, yeah, For sure. I wonder how we could make that happen. So, yeah. <laughs> actually, the show that I wasn't naming oh. um, is. Blake's? 
No. Um, no, the liturgists. Uh huh. Um, yeah, and. Okay. It's been around uh, since 2005? I don't know what's happening around okay. that long. Okay. All I know is they met because okay. of Rob Bell, and I don't remember what year oh, it was okay. off the top of my head. <laughs> I have it written down somewhere because I've talked, I've spoken with both of them before. But they do, um, they do gatherings in cities, and I came across this because I actually was doing a freelance story for religion dispatches, and I went to one of the gatherings here in Denver. Um, and when I was speaking with the folks who were in attendance, you know, they weren't necessarily all ex-evangelical or would have identified that way, but um, there were a lot of people who were existing in this very ambiguous zone of not knowing whether to call themselves like post-Christian yes. because they still kind of thought of themselves as Christian but didn't like being affiliated with the institution and the everything that came with it because of histories and things like that. Um, and so it was a very interesting diverse group of how every individual there identified but yet their commonality was they all listened to the liturgists and they all wanted to be amongst the people who would listen to that show because it was a common group and they felt that amongst those people they could have conversations that they couldn't have elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you guys kind of experienced the same thing. Yeah, and I, I intentionally named my nonprofit the Open Stories Foundation instead of the Mormon Stories Foundation because I felt a lot of optimism that once we really perfected this model of community building and outreach and support for Mormons, that we'd love to instantiate that and, and provide support to other communities to do the same thing. Because we feel like what we've done is very successful and it's been really meaningful mm -hmm. and really helpful. And we want, I would love to share our model with other uh, religious traditions. And, just be a consultant because it's worth doing and uh, it's fun. Yeah, it's been really fun to meet all these folks online. Yeah, yeah, so I, it's fun. I, I encourage you to pursue it if you feel so inclined. Yeah. Um, I want to give you an opportunity, but we have a couple minutes left to, to answer about. Okay. Um, any, I mean, I also let us get out. We can get to lunch before everybody else. <laughs> um, but I just want to say thank you again to Anne, John, and Vince for coming here. Um, two of you flew in, so thank you so much for doing that. Um, and I, I drove also up 36. Now come on. <laughs> <laughs> I drove up 36. Took, took my life in my hands this morning. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I wanted to say thank you again to all three of you for coming out, and thank you guys for all the work you guys do with your podcasts. Um, and thank you guys for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for listening to Religionish, your nerdy podcast about how religion impacts society. If you enjoy this show, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to Religionish. This podcast is a solo project of love by me, Ashley Campbell. Your reviews really help the show reach more people. You can find this episode's show notes at religionish.com, and you can follow the show on Twitter at religionish and on Instagram at religionish underscore podcast. Hope you have a great weekend, religion nerds.